This e-cystic fibrosis review podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. Many patients with cystic fibrosis have growth hormone deficiency. CFTR appears to modulate growth hormone and insulin-like growth factor. So modulators may improve height from mechanisms independent of overcoming stunting due to malnutrition. CFTR, growth and liver disease, a clinical perspective. Welcome to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. How far beyond the lungs do the effects of CFTR modulation go? Can they promote an increase in BMI? Can they promote an increase in height? Do CFTR modulators provide benefit for cystic fibrosis liver disease? That's what we're here to talk about today with Dr. Darla Shores and Dr. Anna Reed from the Thrive Pediatric Intestinal Rehabilitation Center in the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at the Johns Hopkins Children's Center. For our author's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, eCysticFibrosisReview.org, and click on the Volume 9, Issue 6 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of eCystic Fibrosis Review. Dr. Shores, Dr. Reed, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Our first learning objective is to describe what's currently known about how CFTR modulators affect growth. So take us to the clinic, if you would, please, Dr. Shores, and start us out with a patient scenario. A seven-year-old boy has homozygous F508 CFTR mutations and pancreatic insufficiency. He's had several recent pulmonary exacerbations, and the CFTR modulator Lubincaftor Ivacaftor is being started. Additionally, his height and weight have been below the third percentile, despite supplemental gastrostomy tube feedings for the last two years. In addition to your concerns for poor growth, his family has also expressed concern about him being the smallest child in his class. From the perspective of pediatrics, doctor, explain to us why growth is considered so important in children with cystic fibrosis. In pediatrics, we're concerned with attaining both appropriate weight gain as well as height. We know weight gain reflects nutritional status, and poor nutrition is associated with worsened lung function, overall worsened global functioning, and increased morbidity. So we take nutrition very seriously. We often use two strategies to support weight gain, such as supplemental nutrition shakes, either by mouth or gastrostomy tube, and pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy to reduce malabsorption of both macronutrients, such as calories from fat, and micronutrients, such as fat-soluble vitamins. Despite these interventions, some children still struggle with malnutrition and poor weight gain. Chronic malnutrition can lead to stunting or poor linear growth, meaning children will not meet their genetic height potential. Dr. Reed? So this can all be an additional psychosocial stressor for patients and for their families. And as growth plates fused by puberty, we really have a finite time to improve patients' height. So, Dr. Reed, let me ask you, what do we know about the effect of CFTR modulators on improving growth? So, we know that observational and randomized studies in both children and adults have shown improved weight gain and BMI with modulator use. However, how studies measure growth in children is really critically important. Children grow over time as they get older, so simply showing an increase in weight or height in a pediatric study is not as convincing as showing an improvement in height and weight percentiles or body mass index. And Z-scores for height and weight and BMI are even more useful for comparing gains across different populations. Z-scores standardize the height and weight to both the age and the gender of the child, and they can reflect how far away the individual is from the 50th percentile. Give us an example, if you would, please. 
a z-score that improved from minus three, which is a three standard deviation below to the 50th percentile, to minus 1.5, now only one and a half standard deviations below the 50th percentile, is a much better indicator of improvement. Dr. Shores, do all CFTR modulators have the same effect on growth? Probably not. The type of modulator therapy is dependent on the underlying CFTR mutation, so the pathophysiology is not the same for all patients. Also, modulator therapy is relatively new, so longer-term data about the effects of weight and height over time are still emerging. So far, only a few studies have been published using Ivacaftor or Lumacaftor Ivacaftor. It takes time to study growth. Height and BMI don't change overnight, so it may take many months for catch-up growth to be seen. And given the rarity of cystic fibrosis, sample sizes are generally small, which makes statistical differences even more challenging to prove. There is encouraging results, however, with both the Ivacaftor and the Lumacaftor-Ivacaftor combination therapy. There are several studies in both adults and pediatrics that have shown improved growth with Ivacaftor alone. In our newsletter issue, we also discuss two pediatric studies using the combination therapy with Lumacaftor-Ivacaftor in one group of children aged 2 to 6 years and a second aged 6 to 12 years. In both of these studies, there was significant improvement in BMI scores from baseline. Fewer studies have focused on height. In the newsletter, we also discussed the 2016 Stalvi study with Ivacaftor. After six months of Ivacaftor use in prepubescent children, height Z-scores and height velocity were both significantly improved. Well, thank you, Dr. Shores. Uh, Dr. Reed, the mechanism of how CFTR modulators affect growth, what do we know about that? CFTR modulators seem to impact growth through several mechanisms. Modulator therapies improve CFTR function in the lungs, and as pulmonary exacerbations improve, there's less inflammation in the lungs. There's also some evidence to support less inflammation in the intestine, including changes in the intestinal microbiome. And less inflammation and fewer infections likely decrease the overall caloric expenditure. Calorie absorption likely also improves. Modulators also affect CFTR function in other organs, specifically the pancreas, and there is some evidence that the pancreas actually regains exocrine function with modulator therapy, and that's been shown by showing improved stool elastase. When the pancreas has improved production of bicarbonate and digestive enzymes, such as amylase and lipase, this leads to less malabsorption of fat and other nutrients, which improves weight gain and therefore height. CFTR modulator therapy also affects height through other mechanisms. Many patients with cystic fibrosis have growth hormone deficiency. CFTR appears to modulate growth hormone and insulin-like growth factor. So modulators may improve height from mechanisms independent of overcoming something due to malnutrition. And this has been supported by case reports of lumacaftor ivacaftor therapy improving growth hormone function. And as we've talked about with inflammation earlier, that in and of itself can contribute to stunting. It's also possible that decreased inflammation throughout the body as a result of modulator use will positively impact insulin-like growth hormone function, leading to better height attainment. Thank you, doctors. Let's take a moment now to wrap up this case by reviewing our learning objective. Describe what's currently known about how CFTR modulators affect growth. What are the key things our listeners need to remember? First, improved nutritional status is associated with overall improved outcomes in patients with cystic fibrosis. Additionally, CFTR modulators 
such as ivacaftor and lumacaftor ivacaftor, improve pancreatic exocrine function, which reduces malabsorption of nutrients. CFTR modulators, ivacaftor and lumacaftor ivacaftor, are associated with improved weight gain and BMI Z scores, reflecting improved nutritional status. Ivacaftor is associated with improved height when begun before the start of puberty and may be related to improved growth hormone production. To impact height with any modulator, it needs to be started prior to the onset of puberty. And we'll return with Dr. Darla Shores and Dr. Anna Reed from the Johns Hopkins Children's Center in just a moment. Hi, it's Bob Busker, taking a moment now to tell you about the latest updates to the CF Family Day Meeting Builder. COVID-19 has made it even more difficult to keep the CF team and community connected. CF Family Meeting Day Builder provides the tools to help you build and manage a remote CF Family Day that's safe, engaging, and based on the specific needs of your center's community. We've been adding new topics on transplants, on exercise, on mental health, and we've been updating current materials to help you design an effective and appealing Family Day experience. You can access the latest version of CF Family Day Meeting Builder at cffamilyday.com. That's cffamilyday.org. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Darla Shores and Dr. Anna Reed from the Johns Hopkins Children's Center about how CFTR modulators can affect growth. Now let's turn to our second learning objective, the effects of CFTR modulators on liver tests and on CF-related liver disease. So Dr. Reed, if you would please, start us out in the clinic with a patient scenario. Sure. We have a six-year-old male with cystic fibrosis who has one F508 deletion mutation plus another rare mutation. He has had mild intermittent elevations in his liver enzymes throughout his life, about one to two times the upper limit of normal. And these normalize with repeat testing. He recently qualified for tezacaftor ivacaftor at his sixth birthday. However, three months later, routine liver function testing revealed that his transaminases were elevated to five times the upper limit of normal. The meaning of these results and next steps in therapy need to be discussed with the family and the patient. Monitoring patients when they're started on CFTR modulators, what needs to happen? Safety trials of all four modulators have demonstrated transaminitis as a side effect. And depending on the modulator, Somewhere between 10 and 30% of patients have elevations in enzymes of three times the upper limit of normal. Rarely, elevations may be as high as five times or even eight times the normal limit. We don't really understand the mechanism of action of these elevations, and we also don't know if the elevation contributes to the progression of liver disease. What does the guidance recommend? The current recommendations are to measure the transaminase, which are the ASP and the ALT and bilirubin prior to the initiation of therapy. And then every three months during the first year of treatment and annually thereafter, those children or patients with prior elevations, more frequent monitoring should be considered. If we find that the transaminases are less than three times the upper limit of normal, we can continue to monitor on the modulator until the elevation is resolved. And this can sometimes take several months. In cases where transaminases are greater than three times the upper limit of normal and there's a greater than two times upper limit of normal increase in bilirubin, or the transaminases are greater than five times the upper limit of normal, even if the bilirubin is normal, the drug should be stopped and the level should be monitored. What needs to be done if those liver numbers remain high? Dr. Shores. 
if those liver tests remain elevated, patients really should have further evaluation for cystic fibrosis-related liver disease. Liver dysfunction, including worsening liver failure leading to death, has been reported in cystic fibrosis patients with pre-existing cirrhosis with portal hypertension while receiving lumicaftor ivacaftor. One other important point is that modulators are CYP3A substrates or inducers. They can decrease or increase systemic levels of other medications that are also substrates of CYP3A enzymes, which may decrease the therapeutic dose of the modulator and or increase the potential for side effects. Care is needed in prescribing other medications with modulators. Thank you, doctors. I want to go back to the specific patient you presented, this six-year-old boy. He had abnormal liver tests before he was started on modulator therapy. So what else do you think might have been going on? Well, between 50 and 90% of patients with cystic fibrosis have an elevation of liver transaminases at some point, and a third of patients have an elevation of GGT, one of our other markers of biliary disease. Elevations can be nonspecific and temporary, oftentimes related to infections or the medications we use to treat exacerbations. However, 10 to 15% of patients will go on to develop cystic fibrosis-related liver disease. And the cystic fibrosis liver disease is an umbrella term and a diagnosis of exclusion. Therefore, the presentation can be quite variable. Early findings might include neonatal cholestasis or persistently elevated transaminases. And the most common thing we see is hepatic steatosis. Since abnormal liver tests are common, it's important to be mindful about the timing and extent of evaluation, as this can be both a burden on the patients and the healthcare system. Dr. Reed? Generally, persistent elevations of six months or longer should be evaluated by a gastroenterologist or hepatologist. Abnormal findings of hepatomegaly or liver nodularity or splenomegaly should also prompt a sooner referral. In addition to measuring transaminases, liver function should be evaluated. These tests include total and direct bilirubin, GGT, coagulation studies, which include PT and INR, and albumin, which is usually part of the comprehensive metabolic panel. What about imaging? Imaging would typically include an abdominal ultrasound to look at the liver, look at the biliary tree, the spleen size, and also the blood flow through the hepatic and portal vessels. An MR cholangiography may also be needed to further evaluate the anatomy. And then lastly, transient elastography measures liver stiffness to assess fibrosis. Other chronic conditions that can cause an elevation in the transaminases should definitely be excluded. And these are common things such as thyroid disease or celiac disease, autoimmune hepatitis, infectious hepatitis, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, Wilson's disease, and hemochromatosis. Talk to us, Dr. Reed, about the long-term consequences of CF liver disease. End-stage liver failure is the third leading cause of death in cystic fibrosis. The most common early finding of cystic fibrosis-related liver disease is hepatic steatosis. Some patients with steatosis progress to focal biliary cirrhosis and then multilobular fibrosis. This can lead to progressive liver failure, ultimately requiring transplantation. Other patients can develop non-serotic portal hypertension. Portal hypertension of any cause can be complicated by hypersplenism with platelet consumption and varices, which can cause GI bleeding. We do not yet understand why some develop these complications and some do not. This is an active area of research. 
One last interesting point is that generally those with class one through three mutations, which are the more severe manifestations of cystic fibrosis, have more severe liver disease. However, there are reports of those with more rare mutations who do not present with clinical cystic fibrosis, but progress to end-stage liver failure and require transplantation in early childhood. Can CFTR modulators treat CF liver disease? Is there any evidence that shows a positive effect? One promising effect with modulators so far is on hepatic steatosis. In the 2019 Cutney article reviewed in the newsletter, a small cross-sectional study of patients with cystic fibrosis, both adolescents and adults, who had two copies of class 1 through 3 mutations without any known liver disease were followed for one year. The study compared those on Lumataftor, Ivataftor for 12 months to those who were not on modulator therapy. Those in the modulator group had significantly lower hepatic fat fraction on imaging, which is a measure of steatosis, as well as lower bilirubin compared to those in the non-modulator group. This is encouraging, but given the small numbers, it's premature to know for sure whether modulators will modify the progression of hepatic steatosis to cirrhosis. What does the guidance advise about other treatments for CF liver disease? Dr. Reed? Currently, evidence-based guidelines are lacking. Reviews of the literature to prevent or manage cystic fibrosis liver disease have not identified adequate data to create specific recommendations. Nutritional optimization with adequate calories, fat, and protein, as well as fat-soluble vitamins and essential fatty acids is important to maintain general health, as well as to prevent hepatic steatosis due to malnutrition or carnitine or choline deficiency, which can really confuse the picture. Ursodeoxycholic acid is most commonly used, though somewhat controversial. It is a secondary bile acid with a variety of mechanisms. In cystic fibrosis liver disease, it is thought to be helpful by reducing viscosity of bile and therefore promoting better biliary drainage. It has been shown to improve biochemical parameters such as the AFC and the ALT and the GGT, but it has not been shown to change outcomes. In fact, a recent large French study retrospectively analyzed over 3,000 patients with cystic fibrosis with pancreatic insufficiency. The analysis showed that over the last 20 years, earlier use of ursodeoxycholic acid did not impact the incidence of cystic fibrosis liver disease. Thank you, doctors, for a very interesting and informative discussion. Let's wrap things up now by revisiting our learning objective, which is to explain the effects of CFTR modulators on liver tests and CF-related liver disease. What are the most important things our listeners need to understand? I think one of the very most important is that the CFTR modulators may cause elevations in transaminases. If transaminases are greater than three to five times the upper limit of normal, modulator therapy should be stopped. Persistently elevated transaminases should prompt further investigation of cystic fibrosis liver disease, the third leading cause of mortality in cystic fibrosis. And finally, modulators may reduce the risk of hepatic steatosis, which is the most common presentation of cystic fibrosis-related liver disease. From the Thrive Pediatric Intestinal Rehabilitation Center at the Johns Hopkins Children's Center, Dr. Darla Shores, Dr. Anna Reed, thank you for sharing your expertise in this e-cystic fibrosis review podcast. Well, it was definitely our pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much for having us. I really enjoyed it. For E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. 
To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ecf.dkbmed.com. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, AbbVie Incorporated, GEC USA, and Mylan. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.